Because of the winter storm that has rolled through the south, Aaron and I were unable to record this week. There have been rolling blackouts in both of our cities, and it's been impossible to plan a time that we were both available to record. So this week we're going to put out an episode from our Patreon vault, and we appreciate your patience and your understanding, and next week we will be back with new content. Hey, you want to hear some good news? Yes, and then I, I have a very serious question to ask you. Okay, my good news is right now, your voice is coming into all of our listeners' ears in HD. Yay! That means I finally saved enough and scrimped enough and purchased my MacBook for this business that we have here. <laughs> I'm so excited, like... You know, we just recorded a few things already just to kind of hear what it sounds mm-hmm. like. And I already love it so much. I feel like yeah, we're real professional awesome. podcasters now. I know. I almost want to re-record what we're going to put out this week so that it sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Okay. So you, yeah, I'm super pumped. You said you have a serious question for me. And I'm really I nervous. I do, but first let's chat a little. Okay, good. So you're not breaking up with me yet? No. Okay. No, no. Because no. last time somebody says we need to talk, um, I was single. And then I met Sarah. So it was a good thing, I guess. But um, yeah. now I fear always. I will always have a fear of the principal's office is what I'm telling you. Can you imagine your life if you had married someone else and not Sarah? Oh, my God. I wouldn't have gotten married. Yeah. No one else will put up with my bullshit. So what are you reading right now? Tell me about it. Um, So I'm actually reading several things right now. Um, I am reading a couple of things for work. One is called Happy Teachers Change the World. Um, And Mm -hmm. I may or may not have mentioned this before, but it's about mindfulness in the classroom. I think you did. um, Yeah. And then I'm finishing the book that I was reading last week about the – the real bad Jim Crow stuff and the KKK, um, the, no truth left to tell. The rom-com. Right. The rom-com that takes place in the South in the 60s. Yes. Uh-huh. That one. Delightful. And, um, <laughs> and something else. Um, I don't remember what it's called now. So it's clearly made a lasting uh, impact on me. Clearly. So in addition to, I'm still reading uh, St. X, um, but I'm also reading, um, I started this week, The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. Have I told you my strong feelings on this book? No. I hate this book with a burning passion. Tell me why. Because Shonda Rhimes spends a good third of the book bitching about how it's so hard being successful like her and being invited to all these things that she has to go to. And I'm like, shut up. I get farts in my classroom every day. That's like, that's like a byproduct of my classroom because that's what I do. You're making gazillions of dollars and wearing fancy dresses to galas. Shut up, Shonda Rhimes. Wow. That was a lot. Okay. Well, I won't talk about it then. No, talk about it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, that's where I stand. No, I don't it. want to now. <laughs> I don't want to now. If it means something different it's for fine. you, that's fine. Tell me all about it. Like, why are you enjoying it if well, you are? I am enjoying it. So, okay. listen, like, I understand that, look, Shonda Rhimes is rich and famous, and we should all have those problems. But also, I enjoy the fact that she's very open and honest about the fact that she does not do everything by herself. She hires help because she can. That's true. And I do appreciate how open she is in it. Yeah. Um, and But I'm also like, I've been really, really struggling. Um, realizing that I've spent the last, oh, I don't know, since I was 15, like trying to please other people, trying to make other people happy. And I don't want to do that anymore. And so I've been feeling a little bit lost trying to find like what I do want to do. And it's, I don't know, it, it's been, it's a good, 
the overhead, the overall concepts are good. I'm not saying right. that I'm going to become famous enough to hire an aunt. Not that I need one because I don't have any young children. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I think the, it's the high level concepts about just agreeing to things that scare you. Well, and that's the great thing about books and literature is it means something like they mean something different for every person who reads them. So I don't have to like this book to A, see the value of it for other people, but for B, mm-hmm. for you to enjoy it and for it to have a strong impact on you. The same way that yeah. I did not enjoy Girl, Wash Your Face. Um, and many, oh, I didn't either. Many, many people do, though, and have gotten a lot from yeah. it and have experienced personal growth from it. growth from it. And I'm so glad that they do. That's yeah, that's true. I understand that too. Cause I, I didn't even finish that book. I did not care for it at all, but I understand that other people, uh, do, did gain stuff from it. Anyways, I'm just, I'm having a little bit of a midlife crisis. I think 25 is awfully so, young to have a midlife crisis. I think this is a quarter life crisis. It's not called a quarter life crisis. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't know. I feeling, I'm feeling a little lost. I've thought about maybe leaving, where I live, like San Antonio and moving. I've like, I've just thought about a million things and I'm not really sure where that's going to take me, but I am feeling, um, a little bit empowered and not completely depressed. Now, not a lot of it, a little bit, (laughs) um, a little bit empowered by the fact that, um, right now I've decided to tell everyone else to fuck off and I've decided to answer to myself and to do things that I want to do instead of things that other people want me to do right now. I'm so proud of you for that. (laughs) I have not done that in my career by any means. Um, And a lot of that is just because I desperately need a job with good insurance. And so I don't know how to say no at work, but in my personal life, I've been really good at just holding up the middle finger to everybody and doing what I want. Oh, this is, Totally in my personal life, not in my career. <laughs> right. One day we'll not get yet. there. Maybe it'll look that way. Yeah. Right. So now, are you ready for me to ask you a very serious question? God, now's when she's breaking up with me. Okay. Paul, did you know that there is a maple syrup black market? I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you put all those words in that same order again? Because I think I misheard. <laughs> Did you know that there is a maple syrup black market? I want to know, like, are these hosted out? uh, Like, are there, do you buy them in the parking lots at like, um, you know, where's the place with the homemade biscuits? Cracker barrels? Do you, like, (laughs) like, are they always like you meet up in the parking lot at Cracker Barrel next to the Motel 5? Or how does this work? First of all, the place with the homemade biscuits is my house. <laughs> you never made me any. Uh, well, whose fault is that? Yours. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really can get anything on the dark web, it seems. And also maybe I, I like to imagine like somebody just approaching you in a parking lot and opening up their a trench coat, trench coat full of syrup. and it's just lined with maple syrup. Mrs. Buttersworth <laughs> on one side, like. Yes. And so this week, I mentioned it in last week's episode, which was really dark. Um, it, I'm covering the great Canadian maple syrup heist. Do you know how much I and love this case? I'm so excited. And also, like, all of my research has led me to believe that Canada is not a real place. It's not. <laughs> I like that you it just It is just like a segment of our head. imaginations. Huh? I like that you just shook your head in agreement with me for our audio yeah. medium. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, yeah, for this week's um, Patreon, I pulled heavily from Wikipedia, theculturetrip.com, and I watched an episode of Dirty Money. It's season one, episode five that covers this case. But it, it also got very bogged down in, like, the, the like, serious details of this crime after a while so Nobody i'm just gonna keep it like <laughs> yeah um what i love the most is that the great canadian maple syrup heist is the informal name uh, wh- okay what is canada the real does it up fancy 
They didn't say. It doesn't say. I, I don't know what the real name was. I'd like to believe Operation Mrs. Buttersworth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was going to say I like the idea that that like the great Canadian maple syrup heist is like the gem to the actual crimes James or like Lizzie to Elizabeth. Like what could be classier? Than- yes. <laughs> I have no idea. So it's the informal name for a months-long theft between 2011 and 2012 of nearly 3,000 tons of maple syrup valued at 18.7 million Canadian dollars, which is about 24 and a half U.S. dollars. 24 and a half million U.S. dollars. <laughs> I was like, man, Sarah and I went to Canada for our honeymoon and the exchange rate was a lot better then. And that was in 2011, so economy dropped real quick. $24.5 million U.S. dollars. <laughs> that at $2,000 at $2,000 per barrel of maple syrup, around 13 times the price of crude oil. Holy moly. It's a good thing America doesn't know about that, or they'd be bombing Canada. The heist was the most valuable in all of Canadian history. Uh, in 1966, a group of maple syrup producers in Quebec joined together to collectively market their product. This was successful and inspired a larger agreement all across Quebec, which became known as the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, who now represent 77% of the global maple syrup supply. Oh my gosh. The second highest is Maine at a whopping 10% of the global supply. (laughs) (laughs) So the FPAQ, so that's the um, Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. I don't know why they rearrange letters, whatever. Is it Um, probably French? Have also been, yeah, have been compared to a cartel. (laughs) In the episode of Dirty Money, I watched, oh, they're very serious. In the episode of Dirty Money I watched, one of the people being interviewed calls them, quote, the maple syrup Gestapo. I'm sorry. How much do you have to love syrup for you to be known as the cartel and the Gestapo? Like, I fucking love syrup. (laughs) I put that shit on everything. Oh, wait, that's the the other. No, it's that slap your mama sauce, right? Oh, yeah. Get that shit on everything. Um, they have a strict set of regulatory guidelines with an ultimate goal of keeping prices stable. They limit how much producers can sell during the season, and the rest goes to the strategic reserve that they hold in case of a shortage. The syrup is stored in unmarked white metal barrels and only inspected once a year. The thieves used trucks to transport the barrels to a remote sugar shack, which I just... Isn't that just the I name can't. of a candy store in the mall? <laughs> um, where they siphoned off, siphoned off the maple syrup and refilled the barrels with stream water, then returned them to the facility. Stream the water? Operation... Like, they didn't even like turn on the tap? They just like... <laughs> They can't have that shit on their water bill. Come on now. As the operation progressed and the stream froze over for the winter, they started siphoning syrup directly off the barrels without even bothering to refill them. They will never notice. The stolen syrup was then trucked to the south, Vermont, which I love how they think Vermont (laughs) is the south. And the east, New Brunswick, where it was trafficked in many small batches to reduce suspicion. Maple syrup trafficking. That's the real problem in the world right now. Laundering. Maple syrup laundering. Mm. (laughs) It was then sold to legitimate distributors who had no idea where it came from. Because the actual product doesn't have a stamp on it that says made in... By the FPAQ. (laughs) That seems like an oversight Uh, on the FPAQ's fault. You need to start stamping all your syrup. By that, I mean the actual liquid syrup. Figure it out. The actual syrup, yeah. (laughs) 
Um, in fall of 2012, the FPAQ took their annual inventory of syrup barrels, which I cannot believe I am saying these words. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> Inspector Michael Gouvreau started climbing up the barrels and nearly fell because instead of the nearly 600-pound full barrels he believed himself to be climbing on, they were all empty. Oh, man. Okay. So... Is that how they discovered they were empty? So that's how they discovered they were empty. Now, the barrels that were full of water, this is like an interesting little tidbit that I thought. Um, the barrels full of water, they were able to tell because maple syrup doesn't sweat. So if you leave it on like, a, like you know, when you leave a, a water glass on a table and it sweats, it leaves a ring. Uh-huh. So maple syrup doesn't sweat. Water does. And so it would leave little rings on the other barrels, which would then rust over because they were just being stored. Gotcha. And that's how they could tell what was full of water. Somehow in my understanding or memory, I had that somebody slapped the barrel and it sounded different. And that's why they knew that it was empty. That that too. Okay. (laughs) That it had water in it. Okay. I'm glad I didn't just make that up because I was like, what a bizarre idea for me to have stuck in my head. Police later recovered hundreds of the barrels from an exporter base in Kedgwick, New Brunswick, between the 18th and 20th of December 2012. Police arrested 17 men related to the theft, including Richard Viers, Raymond Viers, his father, Etienne Saint-Pierre, um, Avic Caron. Sure. Nailed um, it. He was an in. He was an insider whose spouse owns the FPAQ. Like, he was literally stealing from himself. What an idiot. Amen. Um, Sebastian Jutra, a trucker who aban- or who transported the stolen syrup. Um, Vayers claimed that he had been forced to buy the stolen syrup and replace it with water under duress after being threatened by an unnamed man carrying a gun. The jury did not believe him, though. Astonishingly, I don't know why that sounds like that a totally seems legit like an story. airtight story. Do you remember um, the last time a man came up to you with a gun and said, "Replace this syrup with water, or I'll kill you"? Because oh it, yeah, it happened last it was, Tuesday for me. It was a tough day. Yeah, that was a tough day. Um, Richard Viers was. Um, sentenced to eight years in prison plus a $9.4 million fine. If he does not pay that fine, his prison term will be extended to 14 years. That's longer than some murderers get in America, by the way. Let's just let that sink in. Um, Avi Caron got five years in prison plus a $1.2 million fine. And Sebastian Jutra got got eight months in prison. The men had been critical of the FPAQ, and for some, the heist was seen as an act of defiance against the state-sanctioned monopoly. So basically, like, the episode of Dirty Money I watched, like, there's, like, pro-Federation syrup people and anti-Federation syrup people, and the FPAQ considers anyone anti-Federation to be selling on the black market. And they hit them with, like, this one lady got hit with a $50,000 fine. This sounds like some Hunger Games shit, like... It is. It's insane. <laughs> Maple syrup dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the article on cu- culture trip I read wraps up with the following quote, quote, considering the cultural and economic importance of this natural resource, it should be no surprise that price fixing and substantial theft of maple syrup are transpiring in Quebec. With so much money on the line, the sweet product is just as fiercely contested and guarded as some recreational drugs. End have, quote. Have you ever thought of syrup as a natural resource? This no. is the first time I've ever thought of it. No. Like, that makes it sound so, a lot more addition- illicit to buy. Like, Yeah. Uh, ooh, I'm going to, like, I'm going to go to Trader Joe's and get some natural resource naturally uh naturally sourced maple syrup (laughs) um so in addition to the netflix documentary dirty money uh season one episode five a canadian folk band 
wrote a song called Stealin' Syrup. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm naming my new rock band. We're going on tour tomorrow. Amazing. Um, Also, the Things I Learned Last Night podcast covered this in episode 96. And as I think you said at the top here, um, Wine and Crime covered this on their Crazy Canadians episode. And so now I just want to, like, so like I said, the episode of Dirty Money I watched was a little bit stale. But I do want to point out some funny things that they said in this episode. So this way you don't have to watch it. You get all the funny and none of the boring. Okay. I was about to ask. I've never even heard of this show. So it is not my kind of show. It's on Netflix. Okay. It's just like a documentary and they go through like different like scam kind of things. Oh, so I might enjoy it, but it's it's kind of bland. You might. Okay. Yeah. It's a little bit. It's very, it's very fact heavy and not very... Kitchy. So it's like a Nat Geo special every week. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the guy in the beginning voiceover is that, quote, it's an insult to Canada to serve fake maple syrup, which I don't even know what the hell that is. Um, because in Quebec, maple syrup is not just part of their culture. It's running through their veins. It's Canada's national treasure. Um, I think I would argue that Shania Twain is Canada's national treasure. Agreed. Um, another person being interviewed says all this stuff about FPAQ is all nonsense because it's quote sexier to sell something when it's surrounded by controversy. And I've never thought of maple syrup as sexy, but to each their own. You haven't? That hasn't made no. its way into your bedroom play? Cause mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of my top three items. Maple syrup, um, just straight up molasses out of the jar. And then the crumbs (laughs) that are left in the bottom of a McDonald's french fry bag. (laughs) Sometimes all at the same time. Oh, no. (laughs) So, also, there's a ton of gratuitous shots of pancakes. Why wouldn't there be? So many pancakes. (laughs) I like that that's the only option for syrup. Like, you eat it on pancakes yeah. or you die. Yeah. Um, we also, there's a ton of, like, um, newscaster stories that they talk about. And, of course, they all refer to it as a sticky problem. Of course they do. Why would you not? The investigative reporter also says that people would have been way less surprised had it been $18 million worth of cocaine. That's fair. She tells us, oh, she tells us some background about the FPAQ, basically saying that if Quebec is Saudi Arabia of maple syrup, the FPAQ is like OPEC. That's what I figured. (laughs) I just love this like juxtaposition of maple syrup and like oil. I told you if America found out about it. Oh, I also learned a very important piece of information and maybe our very first podcast trip. Okay. There are maple syrup conferences. Oh my God. Can you, we have to go, but we have to go undercover. So I will be Paul Isaac Stern. Um, I'm a maple syrup mogul from Vermont. Um, Do you mean Maine, you peasant? No, I'm in Vermont. I'm trying to break through through the Vermont market. Oh, sure. Um, Because they were so successful at laundering their maple syrup through Vermont in the heist. Um, Now you have Mm. to tell me what your undercover name is. Oh, man. My undercover name is going to be... Gertrude... I don't know. I'll do Gertrude Mappel instead of Maple. Yes. They'll never guess. Which also means name in French. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, that is basically all I have. Um, Oh, they also had a very delightful Mountie montage in this episode. Why would you? Please tell me Dudley Do-Right made the cut. No. <laughs> no. 
No. But that's basically all I have for this. I just thought it was so funny and a little bit wacky and a little bit lighter than what we dealt with this weekend. Yes. Yeah. Because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, man behind the curtain, whenever we record these Patreon episodes, they're usually on the tail end of our full episodes. So, um, as you guys know by now, because we've released our episode on Wednesday, we, Aaron watched Mm -hmm. the Chris Watts movie. I researched it and we both texted each other saying, this is the fucking worst and decided to Mm -hmm. uh, come back to it. So we needed a maple, a maple syrup past to, to, um, to cleanse our palate. Amen. Oh man. It was really rough and we are going to come back to it. I feel really strongly about that, but I just couldn't do it today. Yeah. So thanks for joining us on our Patreon. Yes. As that's how the French say it. Um, La Patreon. On behalf of Aunt Jemima, Mrs. Buttersworth, um, and that log cabin brand. Thank you from the depths of our (laughs) hearts. Aunt Jemima. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Paul has something very exciting to tell us about, hopefully next week. Yes. Yes. I, I have a couple of things I'm looking at because I have a fallback in case my first one doesn't work out. Um, my first one will come eventually. Just the research has been really hard on this because I'm having to go off of a lot of he said, she said, and I'm getting somewhere, but it's not as quickly as I'd like to. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that and we'll be back next week. Oh, with, oh, by the time, no, this is a preview. So next week is Stacy Castor. Oh yeah. I'm pumped. So pumped. Uh, it's going to be really good. Uh, Nia Vardalis is in it and I love her. And really? so it's going to be a really I good movie. Stacy Castor is a fucking nutbag and I can't wait to cover it. Absolutely. And actually, my friend Aaron, who was over watching the Chris Watts movie with me, um, pointed out that Stacey Castor is one that I point, that I uh, had as a Lifetime movie of the week at one point. That's true. I'm so glad they remember so, things because you and I certainly don't. No. So Lifetime is listening to us. And that's awesome. I They're taking our advice. So I maybe we just start that back up again. We should. Because... They're going to run out of ideas if it's not for us. I know. (sighs) Poor. And Lifetime intern who has to pirate our Patreon feed. We got you. Yeah. We got you. (laughs) (laughs) Send us your address. We'll send you the promised Christmas card. Yes. Um, We took a family photo. By that, I mean we both just took a screenshot sitting at our desktops. Um, Our FBI Mm -hmm. agents both think they're great. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> Dave was very pleased with his. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great night. All right. You too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Paul. Do you know that... This Unsolved Murders book was the best impulse purchase I've ever made. No, but I do now. Um, I highly recommend it. It was the same. I got it on the same day as I got the Colts book that I read last week. That's the book that I want. Yeah. So I'll send it to you when I'm done. This one's also good. And um, it's real, real, like, it's the lazy man's research is what I'm trying to tell you. Excellent. So I need you to tell me some good news because it's been exactly a week since I saw you, a.k.a. we recorded two days ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm reading a riveting book. It's a textbook for my next ASLI exam. It's all about insurance. Yes, you know. It is riveting i stay up at night pondering questions like what is insurance why insurance oh this book will answer your question (laughs) yes
How insurance? Mm, <laughs> Just the that's important what question. I do. That's my job is I how insurance. <laughs> Ah, super fun times yay well my good news is last night i sat down with a pen and paper so i'm old school i write like when i write my books i really write by hand and then transcribe it that's awesome um and i started to write a new i don't know if it's going to be a short story if it's going to be a book if it's going to be something i abandoned but i just wrote for like two and a half hours last night well that is an interesting good news because my good news is kind of in the same realm so you know i've been like brainstorming a book or a story about like a group like ours that found each other through a podcast and then the main character like they cover the podcast like covers her hometown murder and she starts to like investigate it Uh, i did not know this but you and i are writing very similar books (laughs) well i figured out like the I was like, this book has to have like an amazing twist, right? Right. I figured out my twist. I can't wait. So (laughs) one of the books that I've been writing, um, in fact, I sent a screenshot to Fran the other day and she was reading it as like voraciously as she could on Snapchat. But um, it's inspired by our group too, except that they're a group of friends who I met through Forensic Files like through a love for forensic files. And one of Uh the friends just stops texting one day and they find out that he's implicated in a murder. And so all of the friends are trying to long distance investigate to try to help clear his name. Um, Except that the character who is inspired by you and a mixture of Karen, um, Y'all think that, like, that character thinks that he did it. And um, so it becomes this kind of riff in a in the whole fabric of things. It's really fun. Right. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So it's really interesting that we have both been inspired by, obviously, the best thing that's ever happened to us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the best thing that ever happened and this book, Would you like to hear about the impossible murder? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, Ooh, food just appeared again. And you know, I'm living for it. Very neglected that Sarah brings you food all the time and never brings me anything. (laughs) I'll see if we can fix that. Zero stars. Uh, Winston now thinks that it's his. So that's fun. You made him perform and now he wants (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, so I want to read you like the synopsis that this book has at the start of the chapter for The Impossible Murder. Okay. It says, was, was this history-making case a perfect crime meticulously orchestrated by a ruthless math- mastermind? Or was the prime suspect just another innocent victim? Which I'm watching that Netflix show. Like if that's all it tells me on Netflix, I'm clicking no. Oh, 100%. So um, there's also a quote that I found from this case that um, says that was the prosecuting attorney. Mm -hmm. Few more brutal murders can ever have been committed. This elderly, lonely woman literally hacked to death for apparently no reason at all. Oh, God, I just saw my future. (laughs) She was married. Oh, you said lonely. Well, she was all alone. She was not lonely, but I'm just reading you the question. Was it the husband? So that's what we're going to figure out tonight. You know, it's been unsolved for 88 years, but you and I can crack this. Oh, in like an hour? Totally. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so. Um, Why this... are we in charge with the FBI by now? <laughs> right? This is the murder of Julia Wallace who was found bludgeoned to death in the parlor of her home in Liverpool, England, on January 20th, 1931. Yikes. The real mystery is that the door was apparent, like both the front and back doors were both apparently locked from the inside. So no one knows how the murderer escaped. Or do we? So my guess is that he was living in her attic, like all those creepy stories that totally give me the shivers. Ooh. And then he came down, killed her, hid in the attic, 
and then left. You solved it. I mean, case is over. We're done with this Patreon episode. Six minutes and 30 Maybe. seconds in. <laughs> so, um, the case inspired actually several, like, novels and crime writers to cover the case. And it, in fact, uh, like, it's the subject of several television dramas and, like, documentaries. Um, and it was also a case that made British legal history. It was the first time that a murder conviction was overturned on appeal following the review of evidence. Can I just say how excited I am that you're doing a story from Britain today? Right? I thought I'd stay on brand with you. It's Granny's 94th birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Granny. Or in her time zone probably yesterday by now. But yes. Interesting. Well, only seems appropriate. Queen Elizabeth's 94th birthday. Last night I bought myself a new purse in her honor. So she was six years old when this murder was committed. Holy cow. All right, so um, William Herbert Wallace and his wife, Julia, lived in a small three-bedroom row house um, in uh, the poor district of Anfield in Liverpool. They'd been married for 17 years. Um, And when he was young, he had actually traveled a lot. He went to India and China, um, but on his travels, he got really sick, which forced him home. And um, after he stopped traveling, he met Julia and they married pretty quickly after his um, after they met. Okay. So now he's an insurance agent, and his wife Julia. I wrote in my notes she's a badass bitch. Um, she was an amateur pianist and an, or she was a pa- pianist and an amateur painter. Um, she also was very intelligent and studied philosophy and dabbled in chemistry. So, Why not? Right. Exactly. Um, William was also a gifted violin player and the couple would often play and sing duets together. And they were known throughout as kind of this, like your average happy performing couple who just does music all the time, which is, you know, how people describe me and Sarah, but without a gruesome murder in the middle of it. Not yet. Give it time. <laughs> That's right. We've only been married 10 years. So it's true. Got another seven. Mm-hmm. At least. Um, so, In fact, Julia claimed to be much younger than she was. She was actually 17 years older than her husband. He was 52 and she was 69 at the time of her death. Look, if she can pass for that much younger, get it, girl. Right? It's that chemistry. She made made the first age-defying serum. I'm on board. (laughs) Um... So on the evening of Monday, January 19th, 1931, William Wallace arrived at the Liverpool Central Chess Club. Um, The club met every Monday and Thursday, but he was not a regular member. So um, there's nothing suspicious about him showing up for the first time in several weeks on this particular night. (laughs) In fact, it said... William was known as an enthusiastic player rather than a good one. And I just wrote, lol. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. I sang that as I annotated this. Don't be suspicious. (laughs) So then the first time that he's here in several weeks, the club captain gets a call um, and is asked to take a message for William Wallace. The caller identified himself as R.M. Qualtroff, um, which that already sounds like a made-up name. Did the message say, it's done, delete this? (laughs) Might as well. (laughs) No, it said, um, I need you to ask Mr. Wallace to meet me at 25 Menlove Gardens East tomorrow night at 7.30 to discuss an insurance deal. He called the chess club. Yeah. I mean, to me, this just like really drives it home how fucking boring it was to live in the 1930s. (laughs) I can't. But also like 
like I said, this guy hasn't shown up here in several weeks. And then all of a sudden, R.M. Qualtrough just calls him like, hey. <laughs> so then the caller went on to add that he can't call back because it was his daughter's 21st birthday and he's very busy. It's not even his office. <laughs> it's there. Also... I've always heard, and I mean, I'm not telling people how to do their crimes. You do you, boo. But when you put too many details in, people notice. And when you say, oh, can you take a message? And I can't call back because it's my daughter's 21st birthday and I'm very busy and I need to call you right now at 637 when her party starts at 645 to tell you that I need him to come meet me tomorrow for an insurance deal. Like, I mean, all that being said, you would be shocked to learn how many people call me at like four o'clock on a Friday. Like, hey, we've had this event planned for six months. It starts in two hours and I need to cover the event insurance. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, sir. I just hope nobody dies. Have a good day. Click. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> um, so William took Beatty's note uh, baiting was the club captain and put it in his pocket and then remarked on how odd it was that he'd never heard of anyone named R.M. Qualtrofe. I pronounce it seven different ways because this name is spelled Q-U-A-L-T-R-O-U-G-H and could Qualtrough. be anything. Qualtrough. That's how I've said it in my head once. <laughs> There's um, no way to know. It was the first. <laughs> I also suspect that he said it very loudly, like, hmm, that's so strange. I don't know anybody. Na-. Like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> exactly. With the hand on his hip like uh-huh. that, too? Exactly. <laughs> yes. So the next, the next day, William Wallace goes to work. He comes home from the insurance company where his wife had dinner waiting. They finish eating and he says that he has a meeting and he's hopefully going to bring more insurance business. Um, Now, to be fair, this is um, in the thirties when the economy sucked worldwide. So um, he, I, I can imagine he was desperate for work, you know, Mm -hmm. because just because I find this suspicious doesn't mean everybody does, I guess. So, He's... No, I find it pretty. I work <laughs> in the insurance industry and I find it pretty suspicious. Okay, so. good. I needed an expert's opinion. I'm an expert. <laughs> so uh, Wallace sets off for 25 Menlove Gardens East. Uh, he'd never heard of the address before, but he knew the general area. So he boards a tram that set off for Menlove Gardens at 715. During the journey, he chatted with the conductor and a ticket inspector and mentions that he's going to Menlove Garden East on business. <laughs> Did he, like, announce it to the entire train? Like, I just want to know what happened here. With the same... Like, attention passengers, <laughs> I just want everyone to know I'm going to this address. <laughs> with the same veracity that he announced he'd never heard of Ariom Qualtroff. Hmm. So, A, I'd just like to make a couple things clear. I've never heard of this guy, and I'm going to this place. Well, maybe maybe he was nervous. Maybe he thought he was going to get murdered. Maybe he thought okay. he was going to get murdered. Okay. I like your devil's advocate here. Um, So, he gets off the train at Menlove Gardens West, and he asks a woman coming out of her house for directions to Menlove Garden East, and she said she has no idea how to get there. So he continues up Men Love Gardens West. He asks another man for directions. This man says, that's not a real thing. Like, I hope he said it just like that. <laughs> that's, yep. He was actually a time traveler. It was you. <laughs> it was me. I needed to insert myself in the story for authenticity. So then you did it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so he asks a couple other people. And then he realizes that he's at the top of Green Lane and he still hasn't found Men Love Gardens East because it's not a thing. Um, there's no historical record of this place existing either. Okay. So, um, and so he well, realizes, how do you have a Men Love Garden West if you don't have a Men Love Garden East? Because it goes from Men Love Garden to Men Love Garden West. So I don't know. 
I don't know that answer. It's so you would think that you could go from Menlove Garden West to Menlove Garden to Menlove Garden East. Maybe they stopped to play chess before they got to the East, and then they just never built it. Maybe. <laughs> fucking nerds (laughs) so um he realizes he's near the home of a friend so he stops in to see his friend but um the friend and his wife has have actually gone to the cinema it made sure to say in this book so when you say cinema it feels so fancy um so wallace walks down green lane where he sees a police officer and asks him if he knew where menlove gardens east is the officer um and, and then he asks if he knows who R.M. Qualtroff is. The officer has no idea. But then Wallace is like, let me tell you this crazy story that's happened to me. So last night I was playing chess for the first time in seven weeks. And someone called me and said they want to buy insurance from me. And, that ma- and he tells like the entire story. <laughs> As someone who's been watching the Golden Girls. To escape my depression, I just have to say, shut up, Rose. (laughs) Right? So then in the midst of the conversation, he's like, oh, and can you check that uh, pocket watch you have and tell me what time it is so I have an alibi? (laughs) So um, the officer remarks that it's a quarter to eight. And... um, so he's like, um, I'm sorry. Can I get that in military time, please? <laughs> right. Can you write down what time it is and sign, and sign it? it? And we'll find a notary real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Wallace goes on and asks several other people if they know they know where Menlove Garden East is. Nobody has any idea. So he finally decides that it. He finally finds somebody who convinces him that it's not real. So he makes his way back home. Um, when he, I mean, either way, what time was he supposed to be there? 7.15, 7.30. Yeah, you're an hour and 15 minutes late by the time you see the cop. You think that guy's still sitting there waiting for you? No. <laughs> he went with uh, Humana, like he's done with you. Yeah, better time management. <laughs> so um, later, Wallace claimed that he spoke to nobody on the way home. But thank God for nosy neighbors because his neighbor, Lily Hall, says that she absolutely saw him stop and talk to um, a short squat man before he got to his house. Okay. So Wallace arrives home around 845, only to discover that he's unable to open either his front door or his back door. Both doors appeared to be locked from the inside. His next okay. door neighbors, John and Florence, um, they see him standing outside looking worried and they come to ask if he needs help. And he says that he'd been out for several hours, which is not true, but we'll go with it. Whatever. Um, and that now he can't get in his house. And so while they're talking, he goes around to the back and then he goes, it opens now. So nobody actually saw that the door couldn't be opened from the outside. That's just what he told his neighbors. Okay. Um, so, sorry. When he opens the door, it's not funny. His response is funny. When he opens the door, Julia is lying um, in front of the gas fire in the parlor She's been bludgeoned to death with a heavy object, hit with such force that her skull had cracked open. Ew! Uh-huh. And his... <laughs> he looks at the scene and goes, they finished her. Look at her brains. And both his neighbors say in there, like, when they have to give um, testimony... Wait, that can I guess? Uh-huh. Did they say, what the fuck? <laughs> well, they just say that he's got, like, a lack of emotion completely. Like, it's not even like he's in shock and he doesn't know what to say. He's just like, oh, they've finished her. Look at her braids. Also, who starts like, with they finished her? This isn't Mortal Kombat. No. Well, first of all, <laughs> it's almost, again, like the antifree. <laughs> right? thing like he basically opens the doors like wow i didn't know they're gonna go this hard like right (laughs) so i pour him the annie free dr pepper and (laughs) 
So, um, the police arrive soon and, um, they make note that there's no sign of breaking and entering, leading them to believe that Julia must have admitted the killer into the house herself. However, um, in the trial, the husband stated, quote, it was my wife's rigid rule not to admit strangers into the house when she was alone. What a buzzkill. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, now Anfield, which was the area where they lived, had, um, just fallen into like a, or rather just had a series of burglaries happen. Um, mm-hmm. and they had the media, of course, cause they're really good at naming things, had named mm-hmm. this guy the Anfield housebreaker, which they, they he's breaking whole houses that doesn't here. Even make grammatical <laughs> sense. <laughs> Is he also trading the dogs while he's there? <laughs> I was about to say he just lets all the dogs out. Like, <laughs> who let the dogs out? The World Health Organization let the dogs out of quarantine. I saw that <laughs> a couple weeks ago. So who? let the dogs out do you okay so two completely unrelated stories to this case but much needed first of all my high school mascot was the bulldog and the year that we won state football championship they played who let the dogs out over the speakers for every passing period like the bell would ring and then it would who let the dogs out I never have to hear that song again and I'm okay. Second of all, did you know it's about ugly women? Yes. I had no idea until I was an adult because I've never actually paid attention because I've never really liked it. That's why I'm so shocked that they played it at... (laughs) Oh. Oh, yeah. You had Google back then, right? No. We had Ask Jeeves. That's close enough. (laughs) Uh, Yahoo search. Yeah, we had Yahoo search. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the um, there is money missing from the cash box, but it's such a like small amount compared to the amount of money this infilled housebreaker has been stealing. Also, he's not bludgeoned a single person to death, and pick today to pick up a new hobby and nothing of this crime suits his mo and nothing he did afterward matches this crime either but it's clear that it's kind of staged to look like a house burglary gone wrong um so (laughs) the police officers and i know you're shocked do not handle this crime scene with any kind of decorum nah they trample all over the scene. They smudge fingerprints. The patho- John, John Mulaney comes to mind again. Right? <laughs> There's blood over here. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the pathologist shows up and doesn't take the temperature of Julia's body, so therefore can't um, determine an accurate time of death. It honestly just shocks me that they were doing that back then. Right. Um, The forensics expert um, based his diagnosis on the body's rigor mortis and put the time of death at 8 p.m. However, because she was elderly and pretty frail, um, another... Oh, sorry. No. Um... So the original diagnosis said around 8 p.m. based on rigor mortis, but a mm-hmm. more current forensics uh, expert said that because she was old and frail, it probably would have been more around 6 p.m. Okay. Um, so before her les- her husband left home. Uh-huh. And mm. then um, another expert actually put, who at the time actually said um, it probably happened around 6 p.m., and then added, I would give two hours either side, which seems like a pretty big window. So between four, four and eight. And eight. Right. Yeah. Um, so what they did figure out was that this was a very brutal murder and that it was very frenzied. It was it looked like it was done out of anger. Well her skull <laughs> was cracked open. Was cracked open. Uh-huh. 
Um, So the um, blood was splattered across the room, indicating the killer most likely had blood on his clothes. Um, It says splatter in the book. Okay. Yes. Fix it. Spattered. Thank you. But I think spatter is the noun. I think splatter is the verb. I don't know that to be sure, so I'm not standing on this All ground. All I know but... is paint splatter, blood spatter. Fix it. They had a copy editor who gets paid more than I do. That's all I've got well, for you. The copy editor is wrong. <laughs> Fix it when you say it out loud. Okay. So, so I the, don't have like a panic attack. The, <laughs> the, there was blood splattered all around the room. And the, um, the guy would have, the killer would have likely had blood on his clothes. Um, but the sinks and drains had not been used. So he didn't wash any blood off of him. Um, also there was no direct evidence against him, especially because police were like, Oh, look, a fingerprint. Let's buff that out real quick. Clean that up. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Um, just draw a chalk outline. So we know where they were. Police. I know I was shocked, but police start to question William Wallace as to whether he killed his wife. Mm. and um, he's like, no, I was going to meet R.M. Qualtroff at um, this place in East... I was at the chess club, and... (laughs) Not a real person, bro. (laughs) So, um, not only do they find that there are only five people in Liverpool whose last name are Qualtroff, but all of them have, like, pretty airtight alibis... I just want to ask. Uh-huh. I don't know why. <laughs> somebody calls him. Not at his office. So somebody who he's never met. Uh-huh. Calls him after hours at a place they just knew he might be. Uh-huh. Left him a message. Uh-huh. And wants to do an insurance deal. That makes no sense. (laughs) No. But he recites it like it is a passage from the Bible. Because he's practiced on that other police officer. On all the people on the train. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, um, also, I'm like... You mentioned like being surprised that they have like this much forensic information at that time. They also discover that the um, call from RM Qualtroff had come from a payphone just 400 yards from the Wallace household. Okay. It was. Um, was it in a Best Buy parking lot? <laughs> right. Um, no, but it was super close to the tram stop where he would get on to go to the chess club. But um, Samuel Beatty, who is the head of the chess club, was like, no, it didn't sound like him. So, like, there's his air- airtight alibi was it didn't sound like him on the phone. Okay. Um. So... Investigators question why William had claimed the back door of his home was jammed, but as soon as other witnesses were there, it miraculously opened. A raincoat was found beneath Julia's body. William did not have a spot of blood on the suit he was wearing, so police speculated that it's possible he put the raincoat over his body to shield himself from the blood spatter. Okay. Here it said blood spatter and up there it said splattered. So I think it is a noun versus verb situation. I hate it. I don't make the rules. I know. In fact, English doesn't really make the rules either. They're just birthed and then people just go with it. English doesn't make the least bit of sense. So um, the police start to build a case against William. I know you're shocked because how no. could they? Um, I mean, but what about Qualtroff? Right. Right. Um, so 
Numerous witnesses placed him on the tram at around 7.06 that evening, and others claimed to have seen Julia alive at 6.45 p.m. In fact, her milk delivery man testified that he collected money from her between 6.30 and 6.45. So this time frame would have only given William about 25, 20 minutes to beat his wife to a pulp, clean himself up, dispose of the murder weapon, which was never found, hide the money that was missing from, missing from the cash box, and then catch the train. I mean, first of all... There's nothing saying he didn't take the murder weapon with him or the money right. and dispose of it somewhere along the way. Right. Second of all, unless that raincoat reaches the floor, his legs and feet would have had blood specter on them. <laughs> <laughs> and third of all, it wouldn't take, if the crime was frenzied and like, in the midst of like the heat of like passion, like, you know, like a crime of passion situation. Yeah. It's more likely that he would have lost control and would have been able to split open her skull. Right. For with, with not even realizing it. Right. Well, so he's arrested on February 2nd for the murder, uh, for the murder of his wife. He stands trial and, um, during the trial, he seems detached and he speaks with this monotone voice. Um, well, how do we expect him to speak during a trial? I have no idea. I'm just reporting facts now. Okay. Um, an observer of the trial, who was a crime writer of the time, uh, mm-hmm. said, quote, The jury did not like this man or his manner, which could have been either stoicism or callousness. They did not understand his lack of expression. And they knew it hid something. It could have hidden sorrow or guilt, and they made their choice. Um, he then said, people of unpleasing personality should be advised never to go in the witness box. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so then they, he also speculates that because Wallace wears these round metal frame glasses that resemble... Um, Dr. Crippen, who was a notorious wife murderer, that that didn't help his case. Like, he resembled another murderer. And so they, um, the trial lasted four days, and the jury deliberated for one hour and found him guilty within an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's rough. So one month later, he becomes the first man for in Britain to have a conviction for murder dismissed on the grounds that it was not supported by evidence. Okay. Um, so he moves away two years later. Oh, he moves away and two years later he dies. Um, mm-hmm. And he is buried next to his wife. But then there are several conspiracies that surround this. Like, yes. Chief of which being that he had an accomplice, which makes the most sense, especially because there was that one neighbor who said they, yeah. that she, he, she saw him speaking to somebody on the way home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now a motive was never really found. And that's the big thing that gets me. Like, I know there's not always a motive, but this, if he had an accomplice, there had to be a motive. Yeah. You know, like crimes of passion are a thing, but once you start bringing in friends, like Mm -hmm. that's calculated. Yeah. So, and also he had to have somebody call the chess club the night before. So he had a whole night to sleep on it. Right. Um, so there was a writer, Roger Wilkes in 1984, who was researching the case and he found a new witness, a retired mechanic named John Parks, who claimed that on the night of Julia Wallace's murder, he'd hosed down this man, Richard Gordon Perry's car, and he came across a bloodstained glove, which Perry snatched away quickly. Um... Richard Perry, Richard Gordon Perry was a former work colleague of Wallace and um, Wallace had reported Perry for wrongdoing at work, which led Perry to being fired. So this person like speculates that it was a revenge crime, Mm -hmm. which does actually play well into this idea of like, we found a motive. We found why he would make up a name and make up an address. Yeah. Um, 
Now, in another book, The Killing of Julia Wallace, um, another suspect appears. Um, his name is Joseph Caleb Marsden. Um, this writer, Gannon, theorizes that Wallace knew that he did not have long to live. Um, like, like I said, he died two years after that. So he mm-hmm. suspected that Wallace knew he had some kind of illness that would kill him. And mm-hmm. so he decided he did not want to spend his final years with a wife that he hated. So he hires this man. Um, oh, so this speculation that he hired Perry, the man that he'd gotten fired to make the bogus phone call in order to provide Wallace with a cast iron alibi. Mm-hmm. Um, Gannon contended that neither Wallace nor Perry committed the murder, but this man, Joseph Caleb Marsden, that um, Marsden was about to marry into a wealthy family, but Wallace had discovered that he was having a sexual relationship with Julia. And so Wallace blackmailed Marsden into killing his wife and saying, if you do this for me, I won't tell the girl you're marrying that you've been having this affair. Which is a little far-fetched for me, but you know I like a good conspiracy. That's really far-fetched. So yeah, this murder has remained unsolved for 88 years. It's been covered on multiple podcasts and books. And um, I most believe the guy, like it was a revenge killing. Yeah. Um, That seems to make more sense. But it is very suspect, unless Wallace was just one of those people who chats too much that he told everybody the same story. I mean, my dad is one of those people, so. (laughs) That's fair. Well, that is the murder of um, Julia Wallace. That is a wild story. You're welcome. Thank you. This book also has... um, the Black Dahlia, the Zodiac, and JonBenet Ramsey. So, you have know you it's listened good. to um, shit? What was it called? Root of Evil. No, tell me about it. It's a podcast, and I think they solved the Black Dahlia case. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm excited to listen to it then. It's very good. Very, very good. I will listen to it. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me tonight. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Let's do this again on Sunday. Let's do this again on Sunday. Awesome. All right. (laughs) I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.